using philosophy to understand our city and to change it. This is Phi on New York, the podcast of the Gotham Philosophical Society, with your host, Joe Beale. Welcome back to Fire New York. From the moment Gene Kim, a political lobbyist, accused New York City Comptroller and current mayoral candidate Scott Stringer of sexually harassing and assaulting her while she was a volunteer for his 2001 campaign for New York City Public Advocate, the current race for mayor and the social and political discourse surrounding it has not been the same. Whether Ms. Kim's allegations will have a bearing on the actual vote, and if so, how, remains to be seen. But despite Mr. Stringer's emphatic denial of the accusations, many of the more notable politicians and organizations that were backing him immediately withdrew their support or rescinded their endorsements. Such behavior has, in turn, been denounced as opportunistic, a rush to condemn and abandon a man who has spent most of his life in public service without waiting for any further information that would either corroborate or cast doubt on the allegations. The whole affair is a knotty normative tangle of claims and counterclaims, of who should be doing this and who should not be doing that. To help me find my way around all of this, I spoke to Linda Martine Alkoff, professor of philosophy at Hunter College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Professor Alkoff is the author of numerous books, including The Future of Whiteness and Rape and Resistance, Understanding the Complexities of Sexual Violation. She is also the author of a short piece called Echoes, which is about amplifying the voices of victims of sexual assault, and our conversation begins there. Welcome, Linda, to Phi on New York. Thank you for being here. Um, About two years ago, a little, I guess, less than two years ago, you uh, wrote a piece for um, the Gotham Philosophical Society magazine called Echoes. Um, Would I think it's a nice, it would be nice if you kind of told us what you were what you were doing in that essay and, and leading us into this discussion that we're going to have today. Well, I was uh, trying to talk about to, to bring our attention to the larger um, communicative spaces in which accusers' voices go, because I think sometimes. There's a lot of focus on the accusation itself and maybe the immediate response itself as if those words uh, operate with transparent meaning that everybody can see equally. Um, But what I wanted to focus on in the Echoes piece is the idea of interpretive frameworks and there may be multiple interpretive frameworks, of course, in any given um, public space and public communities. But these interpretive frameworks that uh, echo what someone says in a particular way, sometimes something, some part of what they say gets magnified, amplified, echoed, you know, very far and other parts of what they say uh, do not get echoed. So, so we don't have control entirely over the way in which our speech is um, taken up, interpreted, judged, and circulated. And often the media outlets that um, you know choose which stories they consider to be um, worth covering will curate and edit and, you know, make a lot of decisions about how, um, uh, you know, how some, somebody's words get, um, get taken up that can really make a difference on interpretation and judgment for readers or listeners. So I, I think the, the concept of echoing that I was using is is looking at that in the context, for example, of the Me Too movement. Um, accusations are getting echoed 
uh, more strongly than they were in times past in some cases, right? So there is a, a running narrative of, of sexual harassment and sexual assault in the media that the media is covering. And so the echoing possibilities are, are larger than they have been in the past. If you look at some of the other cases, I mean, Bill Cosby was accused for years. Um, uh, um, you know, a number of people ha- were accused. Uh, Trump was accused uh, well before it became huge news. So it's these things do not always get taken up. But in the context of the Me Too movement, they are being taken up. And um, so that's part of what we have to understand. So how do you see this phenomena of echoing? How does it, how is it playing out in this case here in New York City of Gene Kim accusing uh, Scott Stringer of sexual harassment and assault? Yes, it's an interesting case. Uh, and I would um, suggest that none of us are in a position on the basis of the media reports to really know with reliable certitude <laughs> what the facts of the matter is so are so i think a, a lot of times the question for the public such as you and you and i joe is um it, given that we have to decide who we're going to vote for in this particular case. So in some case, in some ways, we can't just remain neutral, even though we don't have certitude, we don't have grounds for certitude about what has happened here. And I can say more about why I think that's the case. But it's the situation is, as it so often is, you get a, you get a news report, you get news articles and some investigative journalism and none of it is absolutely decisive what we people have to remember is that um news outlets have their own (laughs) interests and motivations so they are um they have to sell you know articles they have to continue a narrative line of story that is being taken up in the media right now. Um, And, you know, they may have other interests. So the public at large needs to understand that we're in, you know, what philosophers might call um, an epistemically precarious situation because we cannot, um, have uh, absolute, you know, uh, certitude, and we, we're it's, we're not a jury. We're not privy to all the information, and even jurors are restricted in what information they are allowed to hear in regard to all sorts of cases. So what? So, it, but it is a you know, it's it's a political question in this case, and it's a moral question. How do we act when we have to act? We have to act. We have to decide where to put Scott Stringer in our ranked voting or whether to put Scott Stringer in our ranked voting. Um, how do we make that decision uh, based on the information that we have? And, you know, I think what's important is to, is to do some reflection here. Um, because, uh, I, you know, um, we have to, my, I read that Maya Wiley had, had said in regard to the charges against, um, uh, who was it? Now I'm forgetting. There's so many of these kinds of cases, (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, you know, she was saying you need to have due process. You need to investigate. Believing all women must mean taking them seriously enough to investigate, not believing accusations 
prior to investigation, right? And I think that's a reasonable position that many feminists take. Believing all women means giving them a kind of of initial credibility sufficient to motivate a, you know a serious look into the matter so taking all accusations seriously in other words is um what many people you know how many people parse the 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 idea of believing all women which was has been a, become a slogan of of the me too movement but um how do you how do you do the investigation? Well, Maya Wiley says you do it by assessing the credibility of the vic- of the victim or the purpo- pur- purported victim, and you assess the credibility of the purported harasser. That's when I want to say <laughs> let's let's be careful here. There's a very long history of wrongly assessing the credibility of women um, in general, women of color in particular, and um, women who are claiming uh, harm at the hands of men, very much so, right? So this long history of discrediting women as tending to lie, tending to not know the difference between the truth and the falsehood, tending to have their own motivations of jealousy or anger or, you know, some kind of usually emotional type motivations is is very strong in our society still. Um, Many people think any poor woman who accuses a rich man has a motive, <laughs> which means if that's the case, that no poor woman can ever accuse any rich man. <laughs> you know, if if we're going to use that as a a blanket means of of dispensing, you know, with the credibility of a particular individual. So, uh, of course, we do have to assess credibility. The question is how. Do we do it? Do we do it reflectively? Do we think about, I mean, I'll just, you know, say in terms of this particular case, if we think about Jean Kim, in this case, there's roughly three possibilities. She is telling the truth. She she is, uh, you know, not telling the truth intentionally or the situation that she describes had some gray zone, some ambiguity, and she and Scott may have, you know, in some ways understandable differences of the way in which they experienced that encounter and that particular event that she describes. So these are the three possibilities. If she's telling the truth, um, that's one thing. If she's it's sad. If she is not telling the truth, it's also sad. And I think, you know, we might wonder why Um, did someone suggest to her that she do this? Um, Is she having some emotional issues that led her to do this? So there's still a reason to be concerned for her, um, even if she is telling a lie because it it gives us some information about the situation, and if it's if it's ambivalence, I think, or 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 ambiguity, I mean, I think um, there's you know it's also interesting because in some cases it may be that Scott Stringer um, sincerely, reflectively and honestly understood the encounter to be non-harming, and yet he may be operating with norms of engagement (laughs) in heterosexual encounters that, you know, have a history and are problematic. So 
there's there's a there's I, all I'm doing here is complicating our situation, which is to say that uh, it's it's difficult to determine which of these three is the case, and it's also difficult to assess how we think about and feel about um, either one of either one of these um, uh, any of these three possibilities. Going back to the very beginning of what you were saying, talking about echoing, um, you were putting emphasis on um, various institutions like the media um, and the and their editorial decisions that they, in terms of what stories they go with and, and how they frame these stories. So much of the echoing, and I'm going to use this, that I'm going to use the term somewhat loosely but the the echoing of the of the of claims and counterclaims and criticisms so much of this is take, takes place in social media where it doesn't seem it's not institutionalized at least not in in the way of of whether it's the daily news or the post um, making decisions about what they're going to be running with here but a lot of this takes place on Twitter. A lot of this takes place on Facebook, the, the conversations, uh, the discourse. So, you know, I wonder about the how that affects this phenomenon of echoing. Second thing leading into this kind of being reflective, um, it does it does our being reflective in terms of, of credibility and who to believe um, seems um, that seems what we are are rarely happens. <laughs> we there's a we're not being very um, reflective, and uh, you know I think that this is part of the the difficulty of this this particular situation. But again, some of the other examples that you gave would apply there as well. When people are rescinding, say, endorsements, um, and they are doing this. Um, Almost immediately upon publication uh, of the accusations, so, you know, and so the when you said kind of believing all women, um, is it done? Let taking taking the accusation seriously or no? It's like well, this it's been said, um, and so we have to believe. I want to, you know, draw your attention to a, a quote here from the writer Katha Pollitt, who wrote in The Nation, acknowledging the first one of the, you know, initial things that you said is that we're at, we're 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 operating from a position of epistemic precarity. We don't know, um, and so as you know, she says, you know, like I don't know what happened, and I'm now quoting her. I don't know what happened, but here's what I do know. We cannot flourish as a society if a single accusation out of the blue upends an election overnight and ruins a 30-year career in politics. More information may, cl uh, may clarify matters, but as of now, we don't have it. Love him or hate him, and I spoke to people who consider Stringer arrogant and bullying, as well as other th others who think he's sweet, clumsy, and nebbishy. He's entitled to a more measured assessment as are the voters of New York City. It is shocking that so many political figures would abandon him so quickly. Why did they do that? So you, uh, I think that kind of captures a few of the questions that I'm initially asking you about here in terms of this, it, this, it isn't reflective or, or what, what is kind of as like a, a kind of a counter to what can be seen as a kind of positive development when you're talking about echoing claims with you know, the Me Too movement, you know, echoing claims of, of echoing voices that have been neglected, haven't been listened to, have been discredited. This is important and what we're also getting is kind of a pushback, not in the denial of credibility necessarily, though we are certainly getting that. And some of the things that you talked about, you know, uh, 
not really knowing what was going on or having a, a, a having a, a faulty memory of what actually happened, of having motivations, being being vindictive of not getting a position on Stringer's campaign in 2013. The very things that you said often kind of happen as kind of uh, to try to undermine the credibility of an accuser are taking place. You know, that they're going on here as well. Um, but there's also kind of a pushback in terms of um, is, is the response that is certainly occurring on the part of some and some who would seem to have or potentially have influence on or it could impact the success or of Stringer's campaign, are they acting are they acting in a moral way? Are they acting recklessly or, you know, without reflection? Um, so, you know, these are some of the things I'd like to, you know, I just said a lot after you just said a lot, but I, you know, I'd like to kind of work our way through some of these things. So I don't know where you want to, where you want to start. No, that's, that. those are some great concrete issues. I mean, and I think it, in some ways, what you're saying, um, uh, reinforces my point about reflectiveness. I mean, because in this particular case, Stringer is a progressive, right? And much of the community that is behind him are progressives. And so this is a particular community grappling with this situation. And it's a it's a community with different views and not everybody's you know, as feminist as everybody else and so forth. But it has a stake in wanting to, you know, think through, as you say, um, uh, questions of marginalization, racism, sexism, etc. And so um, I think there's, I think this is a great, you know, example in some ways to think about because this community is invested in wanting to do it right, to do it better. I, you know, the, the the rescinding of endorsements thing is interesting to me because I think that we we need to understand this phenomena sometimes, maybe a lot of times in terms of marketing, right? And politicians ha have people on staff who are thinking like marketing executives, you know, and advertising firms, and they're making decisions like that. So they're they're not always thinking morally they're thinking about brand they're thinking about association they're thinking about collateral damage they're you know they're they're uh uh they're not making you know uh reflective thoughtful and unfortunately in the public sphere as it exists today you know you can't always blame them because of the pushback because of the ways in which um, you know, people will associate associate them forever and ever with with a problematic event. But I think you know the the uh, I, it's unfortunate that that people make such quick decisions about rescinding endorsements based you know so immediate. And I think the way to understand this is um, you know a, an attempt to protect. A brand, you know, which a human beings running for office are, um, and a brand of their of their business or whatever. Um, I think that the couple other things I wanted to say. One is that when I hear of these accusations, I put them in two different categories. One is, you know a person who has an affair and cheated on their spouse. And I could give a, you know, whatever about that. I mean, you think back to, um, to Bill Clinton's uh, impeachment and, you know, it was complicated because, uh, you know, it, the issue wasn't just that he, you know, lied to his wife and was being unfaithful. But the question was, with an employee, right, and in an employment situation. So, like, what Spitzer, Elliot Spitzer, who was caught 
going to a prostitute and there were these stories after stories after stories in the New York press about the fact that he was wearing socks while he had sex with her, <laughs> you know, as if this was relevant. About that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's probably, you know, in people, this part of the brand, right? Yeah. It's now part of the Spitzer brand, yes. unfortunately. Yes. But it, you know, other, you know, she did seem kind of a young sex worker. Uh, and I was a little concerned, but, um, but this is, not the same as um, having sex with somebody in your office who is an employee of you, right? As the case with Clinton. So we have to think about relevance. And, and that's the difference between progressives and conservatives. Conservatives will attack people who, you know, are unfaithful in their marriages or are having, you know, one night stands or something like that. And this is politically irrelevant to what we're asking them to do in government. Um, and I think what's relevant is how do they treat their employees? Um, and so the question of Gene Kim as uh, part of the campaign makes it more relevant than simply a private relationship that, um, you know, possibly incurred some harm. So I think it's, it's game, in other words, to consider. And I think it's game for people to, to, to be concerned and to wish that they could find out what the truth is, given that he would certainly continue to have a lot of women in, you know, on his staff and so forth. And, and, um, that's, you know, that's the relevance of the harm here. I don't care about people's private life. I really, you know, it's just, it's the issue of workplace interactions. And, you know, casual sex and workplace interactions that involve power differences are a, generally a bad idea. It's not that we can keep them from happening completely, but generally it's, you know, it, it can be a bad idea because things, he called it a light relationship, meaning I assume that it was, um, uh, sorry, that I'm, you get, you're getting the sounds of Brooklyn through my window. It's, <laughs> it's New York. No, no worries. Yes, it is. <laughs> no worries. But, but I think the, the uh, you know, that whether, whether she was an intern or a volunteer, intercept did this big story that was accusing her of being a liar because they said she was a volunteer and not an intern. And I'm not sure that that's totally relevant here, um, given that it, she was an unpaid intern, so kind of like a volunteer. So the, per, the point is that she was in the orbit of work relations, political relations, and thus that relationship then becomes relevant for those of us who are thinking about voting for him. Um, and I think one other thing that you raised was the issue of social media. I wanted to speak to, um, y you're right that, uh, uh, the media, much of the media these days are businesses and they have to think like businesses and they think about what will sell and they make editorial decisions based too much on what will sell, salacious stories, sensationalized stories, um, stories that involve the word sex, um, these kinds of stories they see as um, uh, able to generate revenue for them, and they're making decisions based on that, unfortunately. Social media works differently, but it is not a reflective, democratic, philosophically astute place all of the time, right? As we know, there's a lot of research on this that, um, for example, female jurors in rape cases are more likely to um, let accused rapists get off than male jurors are. They're less likely to believe female accusers than male jurors are. Why is this? Psychologists argue it is 
the natural response of the of of potential victims to say um, she did something wrong. It was her fault. She's lying. This can't be as big of an epidemic as the statistics claim. I'm safe. I can avoid making the choices that she made. I can avoid dressing in the way that she dressed or whatever, and thus I can avoid rape. So the the informal world of judgment and interpretation and analysis is also affected by patterns of frameworks by which we might, as a group, like a, a, an identity group of females or of whites or, you know, various ways in which we can be um, part of, a, of, a, of an epistemic community that has patterns of judgment and patterns of interpretation. And some of those patterns um, can be quite problematic because they have not been reflected upon or the topic of courses and schools, you know, from, from high school forward as they should be. People don't know the history of the disauthorization of women. They don't know the history of the disauthorization of of women of color in particular in regard to claims about sexual harassment and, and rape. Um, they, and also, you know, the last thing I'll say is in my book, rape and resistance, as you know, one of the things that I'm was trying to get at there is the ways in which we are changing our interpretation of normal heterosexual activity, right? What is normal heterosexual encounters? And what has been like stalking, some of the most romantic movies and romantic songs that we all know are basically stalking songs and stalking movies. And uh, stalking is a huge problem um, that many of my female students have experienced, and it, it can be quite scary and difficult in their lives. So we're, you know, you know the, the stalking is seen like in The Graduate, Dustin Hoffman um, <laughs> following his, his, uh, his love, um, you know, seen as a sign of the intensity of his love, right? It's, it's the way you register through a visual medium um, the, the power of what he's feeling. You can't show him feeling that, but you can show what he's doing to feel that. And what he's doing is he's, he's stalking this woman, including breaking the window at her wedding and disrupting the wedding. Right. <laughs> and, 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 and she like says, Oh, Oh, this is wonderful. And she goes off with him. Right. So we, we have this idea that, that women will love this. Women will succumb. Women will be happy to be stalked because it's an indication of how and what kind of intense feelings they have generated. Well, women are pushing back against against this and retelling the story. Now, the reason this is relevant, I think, is because those men who thought that stalking what, what I'm calling stalking, what we today tend to call stalking, that stalking is, is okay as a romantic gambit of seduction, you know, um, can we blame them in the past for being mistaken, given that this is the story they're getting from the treetops, from, from every mountaintop? Or, uh, you know, and I think that's a legitimate issue that, that, that uh, their moral culpability can't be judged just on the grounds of individuals. We have to look socially. What are we doing socially? And whose voices are contributing to the changing conventions of normal heterosexual dating relationships and so forth? Lots of rich stuff, rich stuff there, and, and I'm I'm very much uh, 
in tune with this idea that we have to look socially. Because what, what you're describing here, we're, we're, we're rewriting um, kind of the, the norms. We're rewriting kind of the, the normative uh, constraints and the standards of what's going to be acceptable and what's going to be unacceptable. Um, we are creating expectations and, and um, undermining um, um, previously held expectations. We're trying to, to alter behavior. And, and this is constantly in flux. It, it, it's, it's this fluid um, endeavor that's going on here. And it seems like this is a case where um, kind of the, the ground shifting underneath us and, and it's being contested. Um, you know, when, and, and we can wonder about um, being, kind of, we can be supportive of kind of the, these, the, these transformations and these, these changes in, in our norms generally, and wonder about individual cases, whether they're going kind of perhaps too far or not. You, you invoked earlier Kind of the distinct um, kind of a difference between, say, you mentioned conservatives. I don't remember if you mentioned liberals or progressives, and how um, this is in, in some ways this particular issue is playing out kind of within the progressive community, and that I think is an interesting uh, feature as well mm-hmm. when you think about the. The particular, say, goals, you know, we could try and if you wanted to, you'd be welcome to try to kind of define in a sense what you understand progressive to mean. It is kind of a somewhat (laughs) nebulous term, but generally speaking, most people would identify Scott Stringer as a a progressive, Diane Morales as a progressive, Bio Wiley as a progressive. So, um, and, and generally, these are thought to be the three most progressive uh, mm-hmm. candidates here. And there's been the mm-hmm. widespread view that has been held that of those three, Scott Stringer was the most viable candidate because of his particular experience. He'd probably um, be a stronger mm-hmm stronger candidate. And hence, that's, that is a way of interpreting why he got more um, endorsements than the other candidates did. And so there's kind of a, kind of a, a like a tributary in the, all of these debates about whether attacking Stringer is the best way to achieve progressive goals. Will it actually benefit kind of the kind of pro, um, uh, the progressive movement, or is it in some ways undermining it? And I, I guess I, I want to bring in another kind of quote here from someone writing on this, um, and that's Glenn Greenwald. And it is it's kind of strong the way he puts this. I, you know, I think it's hyperbolic. You know, kind of my my prima facie reaction is that, that what he's saying here is hyperbolic. But I'm curious to I'd like to know whether you think there's anything in here that he's talking about because when you talk about these epistemic communities, you mentioned the phrase epistemic community, and I, I'd like to know whether you think that these you know how related they are to normative communities. You know, and, and how kind of the, the the general norms that are that prevail within a particular epistemic community, but here's Greenwald um, railing against the about face and dropping Stringer, you know, uh, rescinding the endorsements, um, um, and you know, basically, you know, I ended the last mm-hmm. quote, uh, uh, you know, with the question, you know, why did this happen? You know, why why are people abandoning him? You know, in such a fast way. And Greenwald actually picks up that very point and says, well, that is because as been seen repeatedly, the prevailing mentality in left liberal politics is that even grave life-destroying accusations are to be treated as true without the need for any evidence. They casually and with apparent glee 
ruin people's reputations and lives without batting an eye the second someone utters an allegation of sexual misconduct. And one is required to mindlessly accept such accu accusations as truth, never ask for evidence if it is true, if one wishes to remain in good standing in those circles and to avoid being smeared oneself as an apologist for sexual misconduct. Um, so, as I said, that's, you know, it's, you know, he's got sharp elbows. So, but what, what's, what do you think about that? Because it, it, I think it fits into what you were just saying. <laughs> yeah, um, I think he's, he's uh, doing a lot of harm. In, in these statements because, you know, it reminds me of how uh, Todd Gitlin, uh, another progressive, used to run around saying that the left anti-war, pro-democracy, student, glorious movement of the 1960s was derailed by identity politics, uh, by um, black power movement, by women's movement, by uh, LGBT movements, and it's it's a very strong narrative. It's a very strong narrative within the left that you have these identity-based movements that have too much power, and they're running amok, ruining people's lives, making crazy judgments, and they have too much power. And it's quite interesting to those of us who feel like we, you know, we're still like... You don't uh, have the power. <laughs> no, no, not quite yet. Not quite yet. And which is not to say that that any movement, whether it's an identity-based movement, a labor movement, uh, doesn't, you know, tend to make mistakes um, and tend to you know, go overboard and, and, you know, run into all the kinds of problems that, that happen. So you, you have to be open to criticism, but this, a certain, there's a certain narrative that inflates unrealistically the power of marginalized communities to ruin people's lives. I mean, Trump, you know, was elected, <laughs> although there's, you know, I, much more reasonable evidence to believe that he was uh, harm harmful to women, um, but he was elected. I think, and and that's why the progressive community thing I think is 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 significant here. We are in a different space, and my worry about Greenwald's quote is that he wants to take us to Trump land to say just you know one claim, just drop it. No. We are progressive community. Let's think about this. But here's the problem as I see it. One is that there's two problems. One is that you have you have um, politics which in which we, we have to be pragmatic and we have to figure out how we can take two steps forward and not three steps back all the time. And then you have, you know, what you and I do, which is philosophy, which is the the, you know, the the um the privilege to be able to think philosophically and to see all the complexities of a particular issue. And these are really hard to put together, right? Because in politics, you have to, um, you, you, you have to make pragmatic arguments all the time, which means de-emphasizing certain elements of a case that that uh, will get in the way of, of reaching. So there, there, there is an endemic unavoidable, sort of inevitable conflict. But I think rather than saying, well, we just have to drop philosophy and go with what's pragmatic, I think it's important to maintain the tension, to maintain the fact that both of these have their relevance. Philosophers should not say, you can't do anything until you have certitude, because you can't operate like that. Um, but People engaged in practical politics should not say, drop all your concerns and don't think about this too much so that we can get our outcomes. And, you know, and in terms of outcomes, I think we should think about short term outcomes and long term outcomes. And the problem is often, of course, we have to we have to focus on the short term outcomes. What my concern is that if we throw Gene Kim under the bus, as I have read several articles do from ostensibly progressive organizations, 
Um, what does that do for the long term? Right? What are we doing for the public sphere of discussion about these kinds of cases? Um, are we are we um, addressing the ways in which her credibility? Uh, people are very quick to. Um, dispense with her credibility for some, you know, old-fashioned reasons, as you as you gave an example. Can we can we find a way to acknowledge the lack of certitude in this case, the fact that this is one consideration in regard to Stringer, not the only one, right? In New York politics, there's a lot at stake, a lot of lives at stake, a lot of poor people's lives at stake in in regard to these elections. Can we acknowledge that there's a lot at stake in this election and also that um, uh, we need to be reflective about um, the fact that we do not know for sure what happened here and that we should, instead of saying, obviously, this is false, obviously, he is pure as snow that we sh- we can we can withhold judgment recognize the need to get more information and to do more reflection and more conversation um, but then recognize also the need to address short term crises in the city that require us to get some progressive whatever progressive we can get in there into office and so, so I think I think we should not let the short-term concerns obliterate the long-term concerns. Neither should we ignore the long-term concerns about how do we change the public space of communication around these very difficult issues around rape and sexual assault. How do we change that space? How do we open it up? How do we rethink our credibility judgments? Of of women and in various ways, um, how do we how do we make some progress on that over the long haul? Even while um, we uh, we fight for progressive to win. You know what you had said earlier about kind of the the brand uh, that politicians you know kind of are really working for their their brand. It it seems that the political arena is perhaps one of the worst places to um, to get to to make some progress and I don't mean that in necessarily in the, the political progressive sense but make progress on what we're talking about here and in having a much more reflective response and and, and um, a, a constructive discourse about you know trying to get at credibility trying to understand what what happened to Jean Kim and what is the best way to address what happened to her, what she believes happened to her. Um, And Scott Stringer, this man who is denying that anything happened or that it didn't happen. And certainly in that way, as far as, as he recalls um, that, you know, you've got kind of on the one hand, You've got this issue, kind of almost a consequentialist way of thinking about, well, what are the goals here we're trying to achieve? You know, because the politics is in some ways dominated by some consequentialist thinking. Can we achieve the goals that we want? Can we, you know, what are what is it that we're trying to, um, uh, you know, how do we want to transform the city or what do we want the city to look like? And we need to back a candidate who's most likely going to, to deliver that. You have on the face of it these um, in the you know the rescinding of the endorsements of, of the criticisms of of um, Stringer uh, on the part of other candidates and and uh, you know other polls who are giving you know who have rescinded their endorsements, it has a kind of a deontological appearance you know where you know we're going to do this on principle you know that you know we're going to believe her. And um, he should be dropping out of the race. You know, he should be apologizing. You know, he should be um, looking to uh, go into, you know, some sort of um, uh, sensitivity training. Um, he, he should be doing something. And this is, and you know, consequences to any 
any desired political movement, you know, be damned. But as you say, they're really working on their brand. This isn't really, you know, morals seem to be just kind of a front for opportunistic behavior um, on the part of many, you know, who are who are quick to judgment. Certainly, that's what you know. I personally get that feeling. I think that that happens is happening a lot, and I guess to me that kind of is a way. And I wonder if that is kind of a, a widely held. And you can critique my my reaction, but I'm also wondering if you can interpret uh, what I'm trying also to interpret is the fact that Greenwald um, or Pollock's concerns that Stringer's campaign has been destroyed, contrary to those predictions. He, you know, he hasn't dropped out of the race as he's been called to do so, but um, it, depending upon the polls, you know, that, um, you know, P-O-double-L-S, <laughs> the polls, um, which there haven't been many, he seems to be somewhat in a stronger position today than he was a month ago. Um, he's he's closing a gap between, you know, with Eric Adams and Andrew Yang um, and Again, Maya Wiley and Diane Morales have not benefited, it seems, from this, at least not yet. Um, so, you know, there's, the, you know, which of course leads to this other, uh, another point, which is, you know, there's this philosophical, you know, you and I are having this philosophical conversation, and I hope people listen to it, or, you know, find taking a deeper dive into this is is interesting. There is kind of the political back and forth between the politicians themselves and the people who are trying to back them and support them or not and and what they're trying to gain. But then there's the the electorate. You know, there there's the the wider city. Um do they care about this? Um you know, how much do they care about this? Um if if he you know, it hasn't ruined him at least not yet. You know, so um, again, I'm, I'm in typical fashion. I'm, I'm throwing all sorts of things at you, kind of stream of consciousness. But uh, what would what might what might you say in response to some of those things? Well, I, I don't know <laughs> if I can take a position on the deontologist versus consequentialism debate here, but I think you're right to to use those those terms to to name part of what's happening here but but you know what i what i think is that um one way to think about this it may be that that well two two things i'd say one is that it does not destroy everybody these accusations i mean look at cuomo right yeah. cuomo is still on tv every day he's still, and there you have um, multiple accusations uh, you know unlike yeah. As of right now, with Scott Stringer, with this, just it's just this one. Yeah. Although with Cuomo, it's it, mostly it's accusations of just kind of, you know, inappropriate. It, not not quite as strong, but um, you know. And so th- that gets us into that territory I was talking about of how we're changing the norms, or we're con- we're arguing over what the norms should be, like Joe Biden kissing everybody on the lips. My grandfather used to kiss me on the lips. In the South, you kiss on the lips. In Latin America, you kiss on the lips. It's just, there's these different norms. And uh, and so I think it's it's okay to recognize difference. And it's, a, and it's also okay to recognize that we're going to argue over these. And maybe some of them should be changed. And we need to use this process to change them. But, but I think... Um, you know, one of the things that what you were saying made me think is that if, if we think about brand in the United States of America, how do politicians brand themselves? They trot out their families, right? I just saw a picture of, of Andrew Yang with his wife and his children on the, you know, and, and this is very much a big piece of it. So their private lives, their private relationships, um, their families, their family relationships, uh, their religious practices are part of the 
brand that they use in the public to signify integrity, to signify trust, to signify a variety of different things. And this is the problem, in my view. This is the problem. I think that many feminists would be perfectly happy if we reduced that brand to what do they do in public and what how do they interact with people that they work with um what do they believe in in public and you know um let them you know i, I don't care about the rest of the stuff so um we can you know we can limit the amount of attention that is paid to presenting our politicians as squeaky clean family people who have never, you know, done anything weird or kinky or polyamorous in their lives, right? Um, and I, I think that 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 would go, but some way toward um, solving this problem that people can make can destroy political lives by finding out that you know that that your opponent is is having an affair this issue the issue of a course of a course treatment of women interns volunteers employees etc it it brings something from the private sphere into the public sphere in my view so it is relevant for voters to consider in their judgment of people but it is it is one among other things it uh and we should allow voters to have variation in how much they prioritize it, but it is it is one among other considerations. And I think even if you're a deontologist, you can you can see that because we have plural and conflicting values. We can't always um, uh, perform our de- deontological commitments exactly when they cause us, you know, to have conflicting. Um, commitment. So that's a feature of moral life that doesn't make us wrong. And I think that idea of the branding, you know, and and trotting out the kids and the family and the church or whatever is part of like this. That's the purism. The left gets criticized for being purists. And I don't think that's as big of a problem on the left as Glenn Greenwald thinks it is, (laughs) because I think it's a real problem in the the public life of the United States, that everybody has to have a religion if they're going to run for office. They have to have a family. They run for office. Almost, It's really hard for people without children to run for office. And this is just crazy, you know? So I, I think um, uh, if, if we, we can focus on what is relevant, recognize our epistemic uh, uncertitude around these things and we will have to make a decision by when is it june 22nd yeah 22nd i'm waiting until june 21st so i'm (laughs) I'm going to follow the news about scott stringer and see certainly if no other people come forward you know for me that's one consideration because when somebody is making an accusation in public a single accusation, there's no way that I, public citizen, can know for sure whether or not that's true. But when you have a Bill Cosby situation, you have, or a Harvey Weinstein situation, you have 50, 75, 100 women who don't know each other, right, come forward, then you can, you get, you know, maybe not 100%, but you get close, you, you get much more epistemic certitude. So I will be waiting until the 21st to to make my decision, but it may be the case that I have to weigh the pros and the cons on the 22nd without, without getting any more information than what we have right now. Certainly there's plenty of time for things to happen, <laughs> to develop, whether and, and new information on various issues and accusations of, of uh, different uh, categories of impropriety uh, on for different candidates. Uh, that's a whole other issue in a sense. Whether um, you know how does one relate um, or, or compare uh, 
um, an accusation such as Scott Stringer's with one, say, against Derek Adams um, and you know fundraising um, and uh, it, those sorts mm-hmm. of, of um, in, you know, financial improprieties. But uh, yes, there there is there is time uh, between now and and the twenty second, um, so things can can change. But uh, this has been a, a really, I think, very satisfying conversation, enjoyable conversation. Without satisfying, with, though, we did not get to any solution. <laughs> though I had no intention <laughs> or, or anticipation that that was going to happen, but. Um, uh, Thank you so much for for doing this, um, and I, I appreciate it. And hopefully, you can uh, be back on again. We can maybe have another conversation post primary. Well, I appreciate the invitation, and I appreciate you know the fact that you're you're wanting to keep the philosophical considerations in the mix, even in these in these uh, very important and critical decisions we have to make. I think that's important. Thank you. Take care. Okay. Thanks so much. And that'll do it for this week's episode. Thank you again for listening. Reach out with any comments on Twitter at JS Beal or the Gotham Philosophical Society Twitter handle at PhilosophyNYC. You can also email at podcast at philosophy.nyc. Join us again next time.